Who is it here that's heavy laden today? There is someone here I know who's heavy laden. And the context in which Jesus spoke that was not because of troubles, but it was a heavy laden, a feeling of heaviness because of wrong religious belief. But the Pharisees and Sadducees had actually put upon that those individuals, they were sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus invites them to come unto him, to take his yoke upon themselves, and they shall find rest for their souls. And there is someone here who's heavy laden this morning, I know for certain. And I believe God wants to speak to him and tell him that his sin is completely and utterly forgiven. Also, that he was crushed for his iniquity. He was pierced for his transgression. You may have been a Christian a long, long time. But the Lord wants to speak to you personally this morning to say your sin is forgiven. I'll leave that with that individual. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, please. It's interesting that you're going to be going through the book of Hebrews. And turn with me to chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Reading from the NIV. It's maybe not the best translation to read from, but nevertheless, that's what I'm reading from this morning. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. That's what we call ex nihilio. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. By faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Amen. Amen to that. Jesus once told a parable. In Luke 18 we have that parable recorded. It was a parable to demonstrate persistence in prayer. And he told a parable about this widow that had gone to this judge demanding justice. The judge, Jesus describes him as neither fearing God or caring for men. But nevertheless, this widow continued and persisted in seeking justice. She knew that she needed justice for whatever had troubled her. And Jesus says, that the persistence of this widow broke the judge down. Even though he did not care for her, her persistence overruled his lack of compassion. And yet he says, he contrasts that in that very moment, that how much more your father who loves his children will grant justice to those who cry out day and night. But the interesting twist here in that particular parable, right at the end, Jesus then makes a throwaway comment. And he says, but when the Son of Man comes, meaning when he returns again, 
Will he find faith on earth? And one of the dominant themes of this book of Hebrews is clearly persisting in faith. It was written, we believe, around 64 AD during the reign of Emperor Nero. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians, possibly even priests, we believe. They were under intense pressure to give up the believing in the gospel as a result of persecution and to return to their former beliefs that were obsolete now, the sacrifice under the old covenant which would not atone for their sins. But they were under immense pressure to do that. And here in chapter 11 what we have is what we call the peak, the mountaintop experience where it really is brought together It's the peak of the discourse between the author, which we believe either to be Paul or Barnabas, and his audience, the Messianic believers. And here in chapter 11, he begins to make his mark to define for them what faith is and to draw their attention again to reminding them that this faith, which was vibrant, exuberant, persistent, actually dwelled in their ancestors their forefathers, those who had gone before them. A faith that he describes enabled some of them to conquer nations much greater than them and against all odds. As we see in the days of Joshua, as we see even in modern history, do or not, in the 67 war, the six day war, and the 73 war, and even today that we see Israel still stands against all odds. Also as a faith that enabled them to subdue the enemies as we see in the life of David. Also we see it shut the mouth of lions as we see in the life of Daniel. A faith that enabled, but also as a faith that produced, it produced courage. We see the knocking knees of Gideon turn into a mighty warrior. And that's what the Lord described him as. You mighty warrior. Who, me? Yes, you mighty warrior. It's a faith that produced courage in him. But it's a faith that also demonstrated might and enormous power in the life of Samson. I don't believe Samson was eight feet tall. But the strength that came upon him when the Spirit of the Lord was on him was supernatural. It's a faith that produced perseverance as we see in the life of Job. In the face of suffering, incredible perseverance that didn't give up. It's a faith that empowered also. It empowered Moses and Elijah and Elisha to perform great and extraordinary miracles. It was a faith that empowered the apostles and the prophets and even teaches today to preach the word of God boldly. So the whole chapter of 11 is to encourage them and us today to continue in this kind of faith. So what is faith? We know that the author begins to define faith over here. And it's clear to me that his definition of faith is not similar to the ones that you and I might have heard among our workplaces, among our families, among our friends, in the marketplace and the social media. You may have heard it said that faith is a sense of hope that we have by internal subjective feelings. Or... As once a famous theologian, a Danish theologian called Kierkegaard, said, faith is a leap into the unknown. 
or most commonly really, as most religious people, irrespective of their religion, they adhere to this definition. Faith is obeying a set of religious instructions that draw us near to God. That is not true. So what is the faith as defined here by the writer of the Hebrews? And beyond that, this is the Spirit of God defining faith. The very Word of God. The NIV, as we read, states in verse 1 in chapter 11, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The RSV describes it as, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Here, I really believe, based on this definition, there are two prominent characteristics I want to draw out for us this morning in defining what this faith is, as described in the Scriptures. Firstly, biblical faith speaks of certainty. And here the translation for the word certainty is a confident expectation. That is what hope is in the Greek. It's a confident expectation. And I want to tease out two things about confident expectation. Firstly, it's this. It is an expectation that is inspired, and underline that word, inspired by the word of God, the voice of God coming to us. Romans ten, seventeen states that faith comes by hearing, and hearing the rhema word of Christ. That's a spoken word of Christ. And the implication here is that faith is quickened inside of us when we hear the voice of Jesus. Personally speaking to us. It is Jesus that speaks to us. The word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is when faith is awakened in you. And you can believe the word that he brings to you. This is why Paul says that Christ went to the Ephesians. He didn't go there. But what he's saying is that he went through the apostles. Today, Jesus Christ still preaches in his church. He speaks through his people. It is the Lord Jesus that speaks to you. We are his vessels, and I am but a mouthpiece. But it's the Spirit of God speaking through the Son of God, the Word of the Father to you and to me. That is what inspires faith. Secondly, as part of this confident expectation, faith is rooted in the knowledge of God. It's a personal, intimate knowledge of God. Just like our children have of our parents, don't we? They know their father and mother. They know what to expect. If they step out of line, or if they cohere or do what they've asked him to do. They know the character and the nature of their parents. And faith is rooted in the knowledge of God. God is true. There's never, never does he lie. That God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. That God is good and there is no evil. And this is something I believe many of us have trouble with. He is good. He does not seek our harm. You know, we say we believe the gospel. We say that even when we were dead in sin and trespasses, God in his mercy brought us alive in Christ Jesus and seated us in the heavenly places. Do we really believe that? I think when I scratch the surface of Christians, I realize they always have this understanding that God 
is not good. That he's always looking for a fault. It may not be what you say in your theology or belief, but in practice, that's what I see. I've come to understand my Father in Heaven is absolutely good. Absolutely good indeed. So faith can be described at this stage as a firm persuasion that God and His Word are absolutely true and worthy of complete trust. The second part of the characteristic of faith is this. It is that biblical faith prompts a believer to action. It is not a confession that we made or make that is devoid of action. Let me just illustrate this from the catalogue of the ancestors recorded here in Hebrews 11. When God spoke to Abraham and said, Leave your father's home and go to the land I will show you. Now Abraham did not wait until the circumstance had changed. Or was advantageous for him to leave and go, did he? He left at the point Yahweh spoke to him. We also have an example of Noah. When God warns Noah of the impending judgment through the flood, he does not wait until there are consecutive days of deluge and downpour before he says, hmm, I think I've heard the Lord speak. I better build this ark or I'm in trouble. No, he built the ark at the moment God spoke and we believe it possibly took him even a hundred years. If we look at the history in Genesis, a long time building the ark. A long time before you see the flood. Every day, can you imagine for a hundred years? But it's a, not a confession devoid of faith. We can define it even as active belief, living belief. It's a faith that actually motivates acts of faith. Quickened by the Holy Spirit, but rooted in the Word of God. Hence now we can understand why James says, the faith without deeds is dead. And here, the deeds often has been mistranslated. I know that Martin Luther had trouble with his book. But here, it's often mistranslated. It's not good deeds that he's referring to. As the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church believe, absolutely not. Because if we look in James, and we don't have time at the moment, we understand that James gives an illustration of Abraham and Hagar. Not referring to good deeds. He mentions that prior to 2.20, that we must not just say, brother, go well, and not provide for their needs. But immediately after saying that, in 2.20, he describes an illustration from Abraham's life and Hagar's life. And what he's describing, these are acts of faith. These are two individuals that he describes who trusted God. And that's the act of faith he's saying. And if we don't have those deeds in our lives, our faith really is dead. It's not alive. But James says, even the demons believe and shudder. They know there's only one God. My Hindu family know there's only one God. Yet they believe in hundreds of idols. Muslims believe in one God, but they deny the Son of God every day. It's not that. Therefore, faith must be demonstrated in our lives. If we believe, 
what the scriptures say. We must demonstrate that. When I was 22 years old, when I heard the gospel, and I came under the conviction of sin, that very night, the hearing the gospel once only, when I came under conviction, I was convinced that I was a sinner. And I was convinced that what I'd heard concerning Jesus Christ that night, atoning for my sins completely and utterly, was true. And that night, I saw the Lord in a dream. That's for another time. And I knew that Jesus Christ had died for my sin. I knew that my sin was absolutely forgiven. That's complete absolution. Complete atonement. And that motivated me to act in a different way. It meant that I had to go and tell my family. And so there was a consequence. So my faith was acting in line now by what I was doing. Faith and action go together, friends. I want to just take a moment to illustrate this from the life of Abraham. So turn with me to Romans 4, please. Romans 4, verses 18 to 22. Again, reading from the NIV. It reads, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offsprings be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. There are two statements here that I want to tease out now. I'm breaking the mold of three points. We're told in Bible college there's always three points. But here there's only two. Okay? The first statement is this. That without weakening in his faith, he faced the facts that his body was good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead. In other words, Abraham, now a hundred years old, and Sarah, now 90 years old, they were both absolutely aware that biologically and naturally it was impossible for them to have a child. They didn't deny that. However, God had promised Abraham that he will have an heir, a son. And so Abraham and Sarah refused to accept their natural predicament and chose to believe God. There's a refusal and a choosing. Refusing to believe the natural predicament and choosing to believe God. And in so doing, Sarah conceives. Sarah conceives. And Isaac is born. And may the Lord, God Almighty, bring this child forth in your life, in Jesus' name. So biblical faith doesn't deny reality. Never does it deny reality, but it defies reality. It does not allow the present reality to shape our future and outcome. Faith actually emboldens us to say no and refuse the present situation and allows God to come and work in that situation to transform it according to his promise. He changes it and brings it line, that situation, according to his promise. That is what biblical faith is. That's what gets me excited then. 
That's what biblical faith is. It's not shouting up and down and confessing something until you're blue in the face and you die of, and, uh, sorry, you, you have lack of oxygen and you fall down and faint. No, but it's, it's aligning yourself with God. God had promised. And see him in action to say, no, I will not believe this. It will not happen to me. Psalm 91 was read. It will not come near me. I will only observe with my eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. When God has surrounded you, you can say that psalm. That's a Jewish psalm that the rabbi cited for protection. And I want to just pause and share a story here with you. In 1994, when I was still at college, Tom had finished in 93, that's when we had first met. In 94, during the summertime, our, while we were doing our degree in theology, that we had to serve as interns in the church. And my home was in Leicester, where my family was. That's where my wife was working as a junior doctor at that time. We were newly married, only about a year and a half. And uh, so we lived in a home that one of my, my fathers had another home, that we lived there. And so I, it was natural for me to go to be where my wife is and where my family was and serve in the local church there. But in 1994, my father had a huge heart attack. It wasn't just normal. It wasn't just part of his heart, the muscles that had died. But it was at the apex of the heart, and it caused a rupture of what we call the septum, which separates the left and the right ventricle. So it became, rather than four chambers, that's what a heart is, but it became a single chamber. There's no more pumping blood around his body. He was put on a machine that day. He was rushed to hospital. I went with him, but I came back when they took him away and put him on the machine. And I came home. When my wife came home, she had already spoken to the consultant, the vascular, uh, vascular uh, cardio surgeon there, and had basically painted a very gloomy picture. He was 72 years old. As a Hindu, he had fast regularly, so his body was weakened already. And essentially, they'd said to my wife, go home. Prepare your husband and his family, because this man will not live. Prepare my mother, but prepare a husband and a family, my mother and my family, that he will die. He will not live. And even if they operated on him, they could die in young children when they have holes in the heart. And we heard today that the chances were 15% to cure the hole in the heart. And I pray in the name of Jesus that this child, uh, the hole in the heart will be remedied. By the hands of Jesus, the great physician. She came home and she informed us. Now for years we have been trying to reach my father. And I'm under no illusion that if you die outside of Christ, you do go to hell. It's not a place somewhere that you live for a while and then your soul is extinguished. That even these great famous John Stott is writing about. There's no such thing as annihilation. Jesus spoke of eternal, continual, forever hell as he spoke of eternal, continual bliss with him forever. And I fell on my knees knowing my father was on his deathbed. And I cried out, I said, Lord, have mercy. And as soon as I said that, the Spirit of God spoke to me. It was not my doing, but His doing. He spoke to my soul a psalm. Psalm 118, verse 17. I know that in the context, David was saying, but Jesus Christ took that psalm and spoke to me. 
it might blow your theology. But he spoke to me. And he said, he will not die, but live and declare the wonders of God. Now let me tell you this. This will blow your mind now. My brother Jay was up in Scotland. And at that time he was worshipping at a church called St. George's Tron. And he would minister there. And there was a blind lady called Margaret Ingle. She's gone to be with the glory with the Lord today. And she would pray for our family regularly. She was blind from the age of 18 months because of her damage to her retina. But she held a job down. One of the most sweetest Christians I've ever met. Now when Jay left Scotland to be with us in the family, and the heart attack occurred on Wednesday, he flew down Thursday morning to be with us after I'd informed him. Now she gave him a card and he had not opened it on the flight. When he came home and he opened the card, do you know which verse was there? Psalm 118, verse 17. When God speaks like that, if you doubt, you deserve not to have that promise. Let me tell you. When God goes to such extent to speak to you, please do not doubt Him. You insult Him. Irrespective of the situation, you insult Him. When God spoke to me like that, and we understood, immediately I knew that I had to spend three days in prayer with him and not be close to my family. For three days, I asked myself while Jay was continuing to minister to my family to pray and stand firm. And I can tell you all manner of thoughts were going through my head. The, the consultants were trying to encourage us. By late Thursday, I went to see my father and my eldest brother to sign a consent form to switch the machine off. My brother Jay spent all night with my father on that Friday, uh, Thursday night and his heart was weakening. It flatlined twice. His kidneys now were failing because of poor circulation. By Friday, it was very clear the weekend was approaching and they did not want to operate on him. On Friday when I went to see my father again and spoke to the registrar, I knew the word of the Lord and I knew this man needed the operation and I knew God was going to bring him out. And they had already said, he's 72 years old, maybe 5% chance, we're not going to spend money on him. But for the first time, I can tell you, I lost my cool with the, with, the, with the registrar. There are times when there's righteous indignation. You know they're trying to kill somebody. But it was not his time. Not according to sweet Jesus. We went, we spoke to them firmly and strongly that we will lodge a complaint the commission if they do not do something and within an hour they brought a consent form and they said we'd found a place to operate on this this afternoon as soon as I heard that I knew the next thing we had to do is go home and speak to our family we gathered the family they're all ready and placed this little picture the tradition in Hinduism is they will already put a little picture of the dear almost the one to be departed into the shrine the temple in the home and the morning starts. There was a heavy morning environment. And it's interesting, the Lord said, do not go and see your family. For three days I didn't. That was the first time on Friday that I'd gone to see my mother and my family members. We went and we asked them politely, will our Hindu gods bring back dad alive? And they all said at once, how can we tell? We don't know. And the doctors say this, it is impossible. 
Jay and I stood together. We said, you know, whatever the doctors say, they say with limited understanding and knowledge, but there's one that has a final say. And they said, Jesus Christ has revealed his will in this circumstance. And his will is that he will not die. And three members of my family, a sister-in-law and two sisters said, if your God brings him out, we will believe. And he did come out within ten days. Ten days he came out. All three of them are Christians today. All three. And we give praise to God for that. That is biblical faith. That is not something that we had said and we mustered up by saying, no, he will not die but live. But Jesus spoke his mind in that situation and we'd learned enough to say, standing on his word against all odds is what faith means in the Bible. And I believe in this day and age, that's the kind of faith that we're going to require because we know it's not going to get easy. It'll get tougher for us who are believers. As we see happening to Israel, we will see happening to the church. And then it's going to be this kind of faith that's going to cause to stand firm until he returns. And he is coming. The second statement here in a short passage is this. That Abraham did not waver through unbelief. Why? Because he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. See, Abraham's confidence was rooted in the God who had made the promise, El Shaddai. For Abraham, the promise was trustworthy only, and I say only, because he knew that El Shaddai was utterly dependable and had the wherewithal to carry out what he'd said. He knew he could do it. It was this that brings Abraham to the point of complete persuasion. But we must ask ourselves, what brought Abraham to this position of complete persuasion in this God that had called him out of paganism from the Ur of the Chaldeans? And if we look at the life of Abraham, we read in Genesis that God had entered into him in a, with a covenant relationship. And as part of that covenant, God had made numerous promises concerning the land of Israel. At that time, it was the land of the Canaanites and all the other rites, the Jebusites and the Hor- uh, uh, Amorites and the Ammonites and all the ites. That's, that's right. But God had made promises. One of the promises that he'd made to him was an heir, as we discussed earlier on. And we read in the account of his life, In Genesis 12 to 25, we observe that from the time Abraham received the promise of a child, which is in Genesis 15, to the time that Isaac is born, which is in Genesis 21, 23 years had elapsed in time. And during that period, if we follow the life of Abraham, it didn't, wasn't on the pause. But what we see in the life of Abraham is we see many difficult troublesome and some very dangerous situations for him and his family. But God had delivered him from all of them. So Abraham really had many opportunities to see the intervening activity of God in his own life. He saw that God was able to provide for him 
and protect him and his family again and again and again. It was this that brought Abraham to the point that he began to realize that El Shaddai was utterly dependable. That El Shaddai could protect him and El Shaddai could provide for his family. And so he had what we call an experimental faith in God. And it was this that brings him to the point of full persuasion. But this God that appeared to him is dependable. And his word is true. Now remember, at this point, they didn't have the Torah. They didn't have the Old Testament. It's a living walk with God. We have the scriptures, but let me tell you, it's not the scriptures that give you a relationship with the Lord. It's hearing the voice of Jesus. I didn't come alive by just reading scripture. I heard the voice of Jesus. They are here to bring us to the point where we can hear the voice of Jesus. And this is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees went wrong. Jesus said, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And he stood the very word of God. The incarnate revelation of God stood in front of them and then missed the point. How can that be? Knowing Judaism as we do, knowing what the rabbis did in those days, they knew the scripture, they knew the prophecies, and yet they failed to recognize him. How can it be? But it was. So knowing the scripture is not enough. It's knowing the voice of Jesus. Hence, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he says, Peter, this was not revealed to you by men, but my Father in heaven. It's a revealed faith. It's a revelation that comes into our inner being. There's no shame in saying, Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. No shame. It's a contrite heart, and a broken spirit that the Lord will never despise. We come on bended knees. We do not have faith. He has the wherewithal, and he will impart that faith to us. So we've looked at brief definition of biblical faith. We've looked at a brief demonstration in the life of Abraham. Let's just now turn our attention to the importance of faith. Staying again within chapter 11, there are two things that I can see described here in chapter 11. The first point, why faith is important in the life of a believer. Often when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's almost as if we've now come to faith and now it's just doing something that counts. We hang in there with dear life until he comes. But that's not true. And Habakkuk says the righteous will live by faith. The tense there is continual, present tense. It's ongoing faith. And that's the kind of faith that we need to have. Just the faith that we first believe, we continue in that. Now in verse 2 and verse 39, it says that the ancients of the Hebrews, the ancestors, the forefathers that is, of the Hebrews that Barnabas or Paul was writing to, were commended for their faith. And the phrase here, commended, gives a sense, gained divine approval. Very interesting, isn't it? 
gaining divine approval because of this. Because their faith, that is their utter confidence in God, allowed him to work in an extraordinary way through them, thereby revealing his nature, his character to the world around them. That he was great, that he was good, he was holy, he was mighty. Their faith allowed God to work in such a way that the revelation of God was given to the nations around them. That all the unbelievers could see through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through Joshua, through Gideon, that Yahweh is King Eternal. It was to contrast and compare all the other deities with Him that is not a deity but the living God. That is what faith allows. So our acts of faith bears testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness and greatness. This is why God commends them. It's why they gain divine approval. It's not because of our service of 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. Paul says, I can surrender my body to the flames. I can give my life. I can be a mother Teresa, but will that get me divine approval? No. No. It is faith in God. And through faith expressed by love for him and for his body, his people, and the unsaved world. Let's gain divine approval. Let's gain divine approval. Let's dare to trust him and take him at his word. And let's allow him to great exploits through us. Let him do extraordinary work through individuals like you and I. The second point here, why faith is important, is faith pleases God. The author states it in a negative way. He states in verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. And here the word impossible is not able to. And we've got to pause and ask a question here. Why are we not able to please God without faith? Why is faith so important to please God? It's for this reason is that for God to work in and through us, he must pour out upon us his divine grace, his unmerited favor, his grace that we do not deserve. He has to pour his grace out upon us. And grace cannot be apprehended or accessed except through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot apprehend the grace of God any way. You cannot live a religious life and say, the grace of God were given to me. It's through faith. Hence Paul in Galatians says to the Galatians, who has bewitched you? That you began with faith in Christ, now you're going about trying to finish the work through observing the law. And he says, I want to ask you one question, and one question only. Does God work miracles among you because you observe the law, or because you believed what you heard? Dear friends, it can, you can be duped and deceived. You start off in faith and you go into working of works of law. I know that myself because that happened to me. There are well-meaning Christians that I was born again into telling me that the law was absolutely essential now that you're a Christian to uphold the law. And you know there's a deception. No. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law from the beginning to the end. And he nailed it, as we see in Colossians, to the cross and he triumphed over the enemy by nailing it to the cross. 
Elsewhere in Ephesians it says that he's removed the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. By what? By abolishing in his flesh the law. He has fulfilled it. And grace can only be accessed through faith. Only accessed through faith. And obedience to him is inspired by love for him. The motivation now is love for this great saviour that has so much for us. That is it. A revelation of how good God is. Our Father in heaven is good. And it motivates you to say, I want to yield myself. I was driving here this morning saying, Lord, I wish you would take me. Because I'm looking forward to what you have. A glimpse that you showed me of yourself and you continue to is magnificent. Why do I have to continue now? Yeah, your family might miss you. But that, you know what, it's in my heart often. I don't have a morbid fascination for death. But I do have a fascination to be in his presence. Completely. I know this flesh, this mind gets in the way. I'd rather it be removed and the new body given to me, a new mind, completely renewed, given to me, that I will be able to gaze upon him and dwell with him, unhindered, unfettered. The grace of God can come to us in many forms. Let me explain. When you need forgiveness, it's the mercy of God you need. When you're sick, it's the healing power of God that you need. When you're called to preach, it's the wisdom of God that we need. And Paul understood this, didn't he? The Apostle Paul understood that no matter what circumstance he found himself and what goal that God had called him to do, that he could accomplish this through the grace of God that was available to him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Paul was standing here today, he would say this. He says, we live this life in this body, not by sight, not by what we see just with our natural eyes. No, but by faith in the Son of God who has made available to us the grace of God to carry out every good work that God has given us. What have the doctors said to you? You've got limited life? No. You will only go when Jesus tells you. May God extend your life and give you work to do yet, extraordinary work to do yet. I pray that there may be inventions in you yet that you could invent Let's draw this to a conclusion. Faith brings glory to God. This is Abraham gave glory to God by believing what God has said. Faith brings glory to God because it allows God to act in an extraordinary way in our lives and to demonstrate to the world around us, firstly, that He exists, and secondly, that He is righteous and faithful and loving and exceedingly good. This is what the world is waiting for. They're waiting for a message to say God is exceedingly good. And he is, isn't he? Because he gave us the biggest demonstration by giving us the darling of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ himself who came in the flesh fully like you and I. In every way. Feeling the pain. Feeling the sorrow. Feeling the hurt. Feeling the rejection. Yet without sin. He is exceedingly good. And God is able to accomplish above and beyond what is naturally possible. Let us not allow our circumstances and situations to determine what we can achieve and accomplish for Him. 
or what He can do in and through us. Just about eight days ago, a good friend of mine, very close to me, his wife at the moment, Andrea, is at stage four cancer in the hospital in Leicester. And it's gone from a breast. She had remission for 10 years. It's come back about two years ago. And no matter what treatment they appear to be giving her, that it seems to be failing or appears to be failing. And it's gone from a breast to a lungs and now it's gone into a brain. And I know, being in that field, that when it goes to your brain, the prognosis is poor. I say the prognosis is poor according to the medical fraternity. Last week, the consultant, who was quite arrogant, had said to her, um, you're not going to eat again. Because every time she ate, the food would aspirate into her lungs rather than going into her stomach. And she's dropped weight. She's about five foot nine. She's dropped weight to about 50 kg. Skin and bone. Every time I look at her, she's got a, bit, a smile on her face. And we were in Madeira together just three weeks ago, having time, and every morning we opened the scripture and we broke bread. And she loved to share about the Lord. Every day we prayed. Every day I laid hands on her bald head. You haven't got any hair anymore. When the doctor said that, she looked at Dr. Ahmed and she said, Dr. Ahmed, I understand what you say, but my Lord Jesus will decide when I will go. And whether I can eat or not. You know, within 10 minutes, the speech therapist came in to a room, a little side room from the main ward, and she said to the nurse, give me some yogurt. She'd, she'd looked at the throat, used a scope to look at the sounds that she was making, and she said, eat in this way. And within 10 minutes, she was eating. This week, I understand that she's put on six pounds. She's eating. Here, the Lord stepped in in that situation. Because she said to that doctor, she wasn't arrogant. She's the most sweetest lady. Not arrogant at all. She said, you know, Jesus will decide. Jesus will decide whether I will ever eat again. Not you. It's not the doctors that decide. And I'm married to a medic. You know. It's not my wife telling me as well. Let me finish with a story. A few years back, um, I had pains in my sacroiliac joints. I did something very stupid when I was young. I mean, I played rugby when I was a kid, but I was trying to remove a tree from my parents' home, pulling and twisting that you're not supposed to do, and I think I've damaged something in, in my uh, pelvis. And I woke up one morning, and I collapsed in the bathroom, and I couldn't walk off the use of my legs, and hit my head, and I, when I came around, I realized I had collapsed as a result of the pain and as a result of not being able to walk. And I called my wife, and she didn't come for a while, and I thought, she thinks I'm joking. I eventually called her, saying, I can't walk. You need to get me back into bed. Help me. Eventually, I crawled back into bed with her assistant, and typical as a medic, she was faffing around and getting, shall I call a doctor, and shall I do this? And I kept saying, just pray. Just pray, will you, please? My little daughter, who was about 11 years old at that time, said, Is Daddy dying? Is Daddy dying? Mommy, what's happened to Daddy? Which is natural, obviously. I'm thinking, oh my, my. When I'm the two closest people, I need them to have their head, wits about them. And I really, I thought, wish Tom was here. <laughs> and I just said, in anger, actually, I got frustrated, I said, please leave me alone. 
leave the bedroom and go. And when they'd gone, they just simply quietly began to pray. And I don't know what your theology is in speaking in tongues, and I'm sure I can give you a good theological argument that it's a real phenomenon, and even the Apostle Paul did it. We have some evidence there. But I quietly just spoke in tongues for about half an hour, and I heard the Spirit of God speak to me. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I did. And after half an hour, I said, right, I'm going to get out of bed. And I did. With great pain, I got out and started to walk. And I called a friend of mine, who was a minister there, who I was serving under. I said, Camille, please come and anoint me according to the scriptures. You're the elder of the church. I'm in your church. Come anoint me with oil. Which he did. And by the end of that day, I had 70% mobility and pain removal. And that's, again, standing on God and his word when he speaks in the situation. We take control of that situation. When, when bad news comes, and it will come, we know we're going to have trouble in this life from the enemy, from the unbelieving world. We have a number of forces pitted against us, but we have him that has overcome the world. And when trouble and news come, my first thought is never, well, that's it, as the experts have said. No, it's never. Always take it to the Lord Jesus. Say, Lord, what is your mind on this? Show me in the scriptures. What is your mind on this? And you know what? Because my understanding comes from a predisposition that God loves me. That does not mean nasty things will not happen to me. But my predisposition is, he's my father. And I know my dad, who's passed away now, would not afflict me and deliberately seek to injure and harm me. And even when that occurs, I know I could go to him. And that's the relationship I have with him now. God is my Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is my advocate. And he intercedes for me. He ever lives to intercede for those who come through to God through him. Dear friends, what has God promised you? What has he said? about your condition? What has he said about your life and your work in him? Do not give up. It was the third decade that Abraham entered into before Isaac was born. Abraham came to the point because he had seen the continual intervening activity of God in his life, he came to the point that he was persuaded that he who had made the promise is true. Right now, I say this to you as I stand here, that I am believing something that God has said to me concerning even the business I'm involved in, in 2012. And I know this year is going to bring it to pass. But something else he has said to me, when I first believed, I was the only member in the family who was a Christian, and I didn't understand theology a lot, but I loved the scriptures and devoured them. I remember once being in prayer and he spoke to me from the passage in Isaiah 9, 2. He says, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now we know the context now is to do with Galilee. The darkness among the Galileans. That here is Jesus that comes from that, that they'd seen the light of the world, the Son of God. But God spoke to me concerning my family, that those walking in darkness have seen a great light. Meaning that every single member of your family will see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we backtrack from that passage in 9-2 into 18, in verses 8 and 19, chapter 8 and verses 8 and 19, 18 and 19, sorry, 
Isaiah describes a darkness. And it's the darkness is when people mutter and in darkness and consult spiritists and mediums. And this is a darkness, speaking of a deep darkness that had descended in Israel, for she had become an apostate nation almost by this stage. She had given up trusting the light that came from the law of God for them, the Torah, and was consulting mediums and spiritists and not going to the prophets of God. And that's the darkness Isaiah speaks. And the context in my family was that my father was a spiritist. He consults mediums. He would call back, as he thought, the spirit of his previous wife. And, and spiritism was quite a big part in our family. So we knew this phenomena. How wonderful the Spirit of God knows how to speak to us. That even as a young Christian, when I didn't know fully the theology of this, that he spoke to me and he gave me a verse in context. That's God. That's what he does. Let me encourage you. The Lord Jesus desires to speak to you or his sheep. And he wants to commune with you in this way. Do not allow dead religion, and I say this unashamedly, dead Christianity to stop you from having a vibrant living relationship with God because that will inspire vibrant, living, enduring faith in you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. You are the God the scriptures say, who is rich in mercy. And we thank you, you've given us your Son, who is the very author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, we pray that your word might continue to inspire a living, vibrant faith within us. That we may take you seriously at your word and allow you to work in extraordinary ways. That you might reveal your Son to the world around us that you are the only true and living God. And you are the only true and living God that cares for them, that is able to intervene in their situation that is dire and dark, and is able to heal and restore and redeem, for that is what you sent your Son to do. But Father, I pray that you bless this fellowship, that as they have this event coming up in May, that you'd use them in extraordinary ways. That they will be instruments by which you reveal to those around them that the Son of God is real, living and active, and well able to save all those who come to him and call upon his name. Father, we worship you, we honor you, we bow down to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.